iTunes presents Meet the Filmmaker at the Apple Store. Welcome to the Apple Store Soho. Um, welcome to our Meet the Filmmakers series. Let's go ahead and get started with our event. Our moderator today is uh, Mr. David Schwartz, and along with him, obviously, is Mr. Sam Mendez. I don't think Sam Mendes needs much of an introduction, but he is one of the most accomplished theater and film directors in the world with um, American Beauty, Road to Perdition, Jarhead, Revolutionary Road, um, and this just wonderful movie that um, I hope you're all about to see. And uh, of course, um, also great theater work he found at the Donmar Theater in London, and many of his productions have been in New York, including Gypsy and Cabaret. Uh, so it's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. Thank you. And, um, the last, by the way, the last person that Dave interviewed here was Clint Eastwood. So I'm just, I mean, frankly, I'm not going to be as good as that, but I'm pleased to be here. He was actually in this seat, imagine. Um, I want to ask you about how, this, how you made this film or how you decided to make this film because you were heavily into production on a very intense movie, uh, Revolutionary Road, which came out just last year. So this came out very quickly on the heels of that. Yeah, it was, it, it was odd, really. I mean, I stopped working on Revolutionary Road in the, in the middle of the post and shot this movie uh, and then started again on Revolutionary Road. And I've never done that before. And it, it was a little bit of a mindfuck on a couple of occasions. <laughs> but uh, not least because the subject matter of the movies if you look at them on paper, uh, are very similar, right? They're both about a couple who want to escape. In this case, it's a couple who want to escape and, and do and can, and they stay in love. In fact, their love deepens as the story goes on. And, and in the case of Revolutionary Road, they can't escape and it falls apart. So um, they're weirdly companion pieces. Um, it's a dangerous thing to say because that assumes that the people who are going to see this movie have seen the other movie, and there's no reason why they necessarily should have done. But in my mind they were kind of companion pieces and in a strange way this is almost like an answer to Revolutionary Road you know uh, this is how you can live a life this is how you can take control of your existence when you maybe have nothing which they don't in this in this movie and what was it about the script that you responded to because it's it's um, a very writerly film it's a wonderful script by Dave Eggers and Vandela Vita who are a couple uh, well-known literary figures and um, we're, we're dealing with having uh, you know having young children so uh, what was it that you responded to? Well, I'm a big fan of theirs. I mean, I just think he, he's an unbelievable novelist, and she's fantastic too. And, and I, I, it just made me laugh. It was really surprising because I suppose what I thought I was going to read from somebody like Dave Eggers was sort of super clever, slightly, not, not cynical exactly, but, but very um, sort of studiedly esoteric. And you know what I mean? And what I found was this really sweet, beautiful, very charming you know, uh, uh, a road movie. You know, it's a, it's a genre film in a way. Um, but at the heart of it is a couple who are in love and, and there's a warmth and a, and a naturalness about their relationship which is very rare to read in script form. And it comes, I think, out of being, it being written by a couple who are in love and, and they were pregnant with their first child when they wrote the movie and it's about being pregnant with a child. And, and some of that magic, sort of, it's a few, the, the script is suffused with some of that magic and... So I, I, I've, it was just a sort of feeling about it. But, you know, when you're a director, you, you know, you're trying to, it's a, certainly I am, trying to work in different styles and to push my, uh, you know, to, 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 to not uh, always make things in the same style in the same way. 
and the same tone, um, you know, you are beholden to, to other people because, you know, they, it's, it's people who write scripts. You know, there's someone out there now, I've never probably even met them, who writing, you know, a year of my life, you know, uh, because they're writing a script that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read and I'm probably going to want to do. So, uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's weird. The feeling that you get when you read a script like this is, is you have that sort of strange sensation that how did they know what was going on inside my head, you know? And when, it, when, it, when I read this, because I've been working on such a dark piece of material, Revolutionary Road was so bleak and so depressing, really, to work on. Uh, I admired the book enormously, but by nature, I'm not a Yeatsian, Richard Yates, who wrote the novel Revolutionary Road. I'm not someone who believes that men and women are destined to always be apart and that we're all basically fucked. Um, <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm someone who, I'm, I'm an optimist, you know, and, uh, and, and I felt that here was this movie that had the opposite philosophy about, about men and women. And it was a hopeful film, and it had light and, and, and a sense of spirit. And that was a surprise, I suppose, coming from Dave and Vendler. Uh, because Ro uh, Revolutionary Road is really about a couple that's trapped. I mean, it's a tragedy in the classic sense that it's, they, they can't get out of this doomed marriage. Um, and, and the new film, Away We Go, the newer film, is about a couple that's experiencing freedom. They're sort of, they know their life is going to change once they have a child, but they they have this period of, of freedom where they can move around and really find themselves. Yeah, it's also that thing, I realized when I was reading it and when I worked on it, that a lot of my friends and me myself, you know, we, we made the big decisions about life when we were in our mid-30s, right? I mean, we, we, we settled down, have, a, have kids, and, and uh, in Revolutionary Road, as, as it was often the case in the 50s, they made those big decisions in their early 20s. And you could say that's the, the difference between the two stories, is that... Is that, thank you very much. Um, uh, which is that uh, you know you you've got uh, um, uh, a couple you know who who have not have had that choice taken away from them in Revolutionary Road because they, they can't leave because they've got kids um, and here you know but it also discusses the flip side of that you know what happens to, uh, when you know you 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 think that you're going to be able to have kids in your mid thirties and maybe you can't anymore you know there's a whole scene about someone who has has had many miscarriages and so. The, the, the movie gradually turns darker towards the end and it begins to creep up on you what it's actually about, which is not initially what it seems to be about. And I thought that was pretty impressive about the screenplay as well. And, um, it, you know, you've... Interestingly, all of your films have sort of been about America in some way, sort of about an image of America. Most of them have dealt with a violent side of, of America. This is sort of the America of the, of, um, the road movie. Um, and it's, it's a kind of sweeter side um, of, of the country that you're dealing with also and, uh, and a tradition of this sort of exploring and looking around. So could you talk about what that was like, sort of working in the road movie genre? Um, well, I loved it. I mean, I thought it was, yeah. you know, I, I, I love the locations that they're chosen, the odd places, not the conventional places that you would expect them to travel to and not big cities on the whole um, and odd landscapes and uh, out-of-the-way places. Um, and that, that was fun. Uh, and I like the, 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 the sort of old-fashioned storybook nature of the, the road movie as a genre, you know, that you know you're going to go through various chapters and you're going to get to the end and there's going to be some sort of answer at the end of the road. I, I, I quite like that. Um, and it is, you know, it's weird. I don't know why I've made so many films about and set in America. You know, I should stop it now. <laughs> Frankly. And... and um and could you talk about the casting? I mean, the, you know, this is a film like Revolutionary Road. It's sort of built around this incredible couple. Maya Rudolph and John Krasinski have such a great um, screen chemistry. 
and just watching this couple as they're sort of observing what's going on around them um, is is a, such a pleasure in this movie, um, and it, car- it you know it's essential to the film, and they're not sort of obvious choices maybe for casting. So could you talk about casting and working with them? Yeah, I mean, John, I was in, I, I, John did two days on Jarhead about, for me for about four years ago and he hadn't done anything, nothing really at all. And he, hadn't, he was just about to start recording the TV series of The Office. And my first impression of him is not at all what the impression you would get from, uh, of him if you watch The Office is. You know, he's sort of the everyman character in The Office and you've got Steve Carell and Rain Wilson and those guys being a bit more out there. But, but my experience on set with him was that he was much more edgy and, and funnier and more inventive and, and sort of strange and gawky and, and uh, eccentric, you know, and very, very quick. And he never did anything the same twice. And I, and I loved that. And I really thought he had a gift. And, um, and so, uh, he, uh, you know, I then said to him, under no circumstances do the US TV series The Office. It'll be a terrible failure. Um, and I was completely wrong. Uh, and he did it, and now I so I'm now in that nice position of you know he's actually achieved the sort of fame that makes it possible for him to take the lead in a movie. But also, I had a really good experience with Focus, who made this movie. You know, I've never had to cast anyone in a movie that I haven't wanted to cast. But on the other hand, I've never had a studio say to me, "Cast whoever you want," uh, and that's very unusual. You know, and and that kind of filmmaker-friendly environment really helped. And so I was able to cast people as they were described in the script. And some of Dave and Venola's descriptions were brilliant. You know, I think they describe, they don't physically, this is, I think, a sign of good writing as well. They, they, they don't describe what the character looks like specifically. They didn't say, you know, he's tall and lanky, he's got a beard and glasses and long hair. They, they, uh, they said, you know, he has the look of a, a man who's gone camping nude and, uh, <laughs> and, and, and in another life might have been shooting people from a tall building. You know, and I just thought that was a brilliant description of the character, and so I went, <laughs> John Krasinski. No, I, I, uh, and um, and Maya again. Maya was Maya, Maya was described as a sort of uh, you know the feeling of the character, you know her softness and her warmth and and um, and her a slightly eccentric dress sense and the fact that she had problem hair, all these little things. But it didn't say exactly what she looked like, and um, and uh, and I didn't think that you know. Uh, I met Maya thinking, oh, she's, you know, that amazing, fabulous actress in Saturday Night Live, and she's going to be, you know, a comedienne, basically. And uh, she walked in and started reading the script, and she was the part. She just was it. And she's, I mean, if you come down from another planet, you would never have believed she did high-definition, big, you know, uh, high-energy comedy. She's just a leading actress. And uh, it's amazing to watch someone, in my opinion, make that leap, because... Uh, most of the time, the Saturday Night Live guys go straight into movies doing basically what they do on the TV show. Um, they have a character or whatever, and they, and they stay at that level of performance. Um, and it takes them, in many cases, many years, like Bill Murray, to sort of wind down and become a naturalistic actor and a great actor in his own right. But I think I think Meyer has done done that in one movie, and uh, I think she's amazing. I have to say, um, she's was the biggest surprise of the film for me. She quietly sort of captures that. Fear the, the fear of what it means to have a child underneath. Um, I mean, you feel the, the the joy of expecting you know expecting a child, but also the fear, and she she lets you see that in a very real way. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean it helped also that she had a baby, yeah. and she remembered how it felt physically and emotionally, and uh, and so that was that was good. That kind of rooted it, um, and uh, and it also helped that they got on very well, and 
and uh, really became very good friends. And so the physical, emotional intimacy wasn't difficult for them. So, uh, and, and another thing, great thing about the film is all the supporting parts. They're great uh, performances in smaller roles. Great performance by Jeff Daniels. It's a, it's a small role, but really important. Yeah, I kind of like the fact that also we subtly dressed them the same, you know, uh, in similar colors and with the same beard. I, I always felt like John looked a little bit like Jeff Daniels. And then we cast Paul Schneider as John's brother, who also looks a little bit like Jeff, Jeff Daniels. They really do look like, like the same family. Hmm. Hmm. Um, I was talking about the film yesterday and described it like, a, um, like an LP, like an old-fashioned record with, where you listen to a series of songs and they're kind of interrelated and that the movie is sort of like that. It's like a series of scenes. I mean, and that's what a road movie lets you do that kind of um, you know, add up to something, but there's sort of an easygoing, gentle quality to it. I just wonder if you could talk about that well, uh, quality of the script. <clears throat> yeah, th thank you. I mean, it's. Um, I think it's. it was one of the surprises when I read it, and it's also, I think, you know, maybe people who have seen my work and, and have certain expectations, you know, that, that's one of the strangest things about it is that, you know, it is an easygoing, it's a very, it's a very gentle film, you know, and, um, and it's, uh, it's important that you see it with an audience, you know what I mean, and that, that there's a... Because uh, it's, it's a very... It's it's a it's a funny movie, and I think that that I think it's uh, uh, it's the people who influenced me when I was making it. You know, people like Hal Ashby and and uh, you know those those sorts of movie makers, uh, movie like Harold and Maud and Last Detail. You know, both masterpieces, but um, very very difficult very difficult tones to capture. You know, and again, it's this slightly slightly uh, deceptively gentle tone that, that's there in the film. Hmm. And it was a different type of working for you. You sort of alluded to that earlier that you, you know, were trying to mix things up, not just in terms of what the content of the film was, but in the style of filmmaking. So could you talk about that, like what the shoot was like for you and the atmosphere on the set? Yeah, I mean, I, it was a, I, you know, I hadn't made a movie to this budget size since American Beauty, and I, I also was very conscious that, you know, I, I should be, um, I should be, I should return the favor to Focus if they trusted me <laughs> you know to cast who who I wanted to cast I should also make the movie for the within the budget that they give me and, and the, the length of shoot and all that kind of stuff so I did it I made it much quicker than I I've made movies in the past and that actually really helped me in a way uh I didn't obsess about things I didn't second guess myself I I was I was a little bit more instinctive and uh, and I challenged myself by changing everyone I worked with really I I didn't use anyone I worked with before new cinematographer, new editor, new production designer, um, composer, everybody, really. Um, I, 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 you know, I've sort of uh, felt like I got in certain habits. And when you get into habits, you tend to slow down or become a little bit more predictable. And so I just wanted to sort of shock myself out of those. <laughs> um, and one of the key figures was Ellen Curis, who was a cinematographer, who's a very warm, funny... Um, I mean, she's a brilliant cinematographer, but she's a very uh, a kind of infectious person, you know, mm -hmm. and she... Changed the she alone changed the atmosphere on set a lot as well, yeah. um, so there was a lot of a lot of that, and uh, you know also it's in the nature of a road movie where you've got like a, a, a bunch of travelling players. Every week you you have a new couple come in for their scene or whatever, and they come in for two or three days and they have an explosion of energy and and the movie kind of kicks up a gear, and then you, just when you're flagging another set of people come in because movie making is it's like a kind of uh, it's a marathon you know it's the stamina you know is is everything that you you're 20 days in and you you look at the schedule and you realize you know if you're making a big movie you've got sort of 70 days to go or something you know it, it really is it's tough you know and uh, 
this didn't feel like that at all. It just felt like it was over in a flash, you know. Which was, you're talking about like what it, um, how a lot of people remember the 70s in film. You brought up Hal Ashby. Do you feel like those type of movies are not being made so much anymore? There's such an emphasis on big blockbuster movies. Um, we yeah, it's, it's difficult to make these films, you know. Yeah. And um, it's difficult to have them watched properly uh, out of, you know, I think you, you, you so much now see the way that these, thing, these things are received and reviewed is about, you know, the filmmaker's choice to do it, you know, what they thought of his previous film. You know, I'm speaking specifically of myself here, but you <laughs> see it happening a lot. You know, um, uh, what they think of the writer's previous books, in this case, Dave, you know, the, the, the actors, other things, the, the, the trailer, the marketing campaign, what they'd heard about the film, you know, what they want people to think about them as writers. The, the amount of white noise around a film you know, really, really prevents the kind of, you know, it's, it's very prohibitive now, you know, it's like, and uh, um, it is difficult, particularly in the marketplace, you know, to get support for films that are not conventionally, you know, uh, that yeah. don't, don't sort of fit, fit the exact uh, category on the shelf in the DVD store, you know what I mean? It's like, well, it's kind of a comedy, it's kind of a road movie, it's kind of a drama, you know, I, I, do you know what I mean? It's it's it's, uh, it's difficult. Anything that is uncategorizable is is, is more right. difficult to and make. And there's so much sort of advanced hype and advanced expectations. You know, at the time that Al Hal Ashby was making movies, people probably went in to see Harold and Maude, not even really well, knowing. They didn't, they didn't go and see them. They were <laughs> trashed. All of his movies, his first three movies, were all trashed. And and one of them is still not even his first movie is still not The Landlord is not released on DVD even yeah. now. Yeah. Um, these movies have come, you know, have gradually grown in fame and presence. And and that's one of the the things that you have to remind yourself is that, you know, in time, these movies are discovered in the way that they're, you know, if, if they're any good, they'll survive. And if they're not, then the, the culture will dismiss them. And that's up to, it's up to the culture in the long term to make those decisions rather than, you know, yeah. the opening weekend. <laughs> okay, so um, we're going to open it up now. We're going to take some um, questions from the audience. And we, I believe we'll have a microphone. So just uh, raise your hand if you have a question and we will bring you the mic. So, okay. Uh, my question is, Maya is Hispanic and John is obviously white. Were you concerned about making any statement about interracial relationships? Actually, Maya is mixed race. Um, her mother was black and her father was white. And, and, um, uh, and I, one of the things I admire most about the script was that it was never commented on. Uh, they just were... Bert and Verona, you know, who were together since college, and I and I uh, I really loved that. And I think if there's any statement made about it, is that there's no statement made about it, <laughs> if you know what I mean. <laughs> right. Um, kind of dual purpose question. One, are you a father? Two, um, I, have you ever written a screenplay? Uh, I am a father, and <laughs> I've never written a screenplay. Does that make me a bad person? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I, I, I'm not, you know, it's, it's weird. Uh, writing is such a solitary thing, and you realize that, you know, directing, you, you feed off other people, and I need other people's presence to get me going. You know what I mean? I, I find it, um, uh, it very difficult sitting, myself, sitting with myself alone in a room and trying to motivate myself to write. It's also like the theater tradition of that the, the role of the director is to interpret existing material, and that's what's um, great about watching your films because you bring so much in terms of interpreting through the performances and the visual style and all that. Thank you. Yeah, but, okay. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Mendez, I was hoping that you could comment a little bit on uh, your rehearsal process for theater versus film with your actors. 
Uh, yes, uh, I rehearse all, all the movies I do, um, and uh, but rehearsals are quite different for film and theatre. I mean, so much of the time you sp you spend, uh, and even movie to movie. You know, this movie I, I got John and Maya together very early. I had three weeks rehearsal, but I split the three weeks up because I wanted to get them together as early as possible. And I, um, a lot of it was just making sure that they became friends, so that they became relaxed with each other. I was very aware that Maya felt insecure about whether she was going to be able to carry the film and the more the earlier she started the better but you know so much of rehearsals in movies are about filling people's gas tanks up with as much information as possible you know what happened just before the scene what happens afterwards you know I may talk about how I'm going to shoot it um, talk about uh, the characters how they dress what the inside of their house would look like what their impression of what it would look like I mean I pick their brains about all sorts of things that get fed into production design and and uh, how the, sh the scenes are going to get shot. Um, and then, you know, weird things. I'll ask them weird questions about what kind of music do you think your character listens to and, you know, uh, you know what's, what's their bedroom look like, that sort of stuff. And then we'll talk about the, the, the script and I'll encourage them to be as honest as they can be if they find a false note or something that they feel their character wouldn't say. So it's really a kind of... Um, it's a kind of giant troubleshooting mission you know what I mean to get them as well acquainted as possible the one thing I would never ask them to do is perform it because I feel like when you when I've done that the rare occasions I've done that you know often in movies you're not on that scene until eight weeks later you know what I mean and then if, if they've performed it and they've felt like it's gone well they're trying to remember how they did it and that that is that is the worst thing you can be doing it's like well how, how do we do this again you know um, you want to get them ready to perform it but they're not so you're basically filling the gas tank with gas, but you're not turning the ignition until the cameras are rolling. So you, you just, you just want to get them as, as, as excited about the scene as possible. But in the case of some of the s smaller roles in this movie, you've got people like, you know, um, uh, Alison Janney and, and, and Jim Gaffigan playing a couple. There's a series of couples, and all these couples have been together for years, in some, some cases 20 or 30 years. But if you don't rehearse, it's literally the, f the first day you're shooting is the first time these people have met. And, and, and I, I think you can tell often when <laughs> actors have not, you know, because you're, you're sort of, you should be discovering people who've lived together and, uh, you know, um, and, and, you know, you saw from that, that clip in the first clip that we, we, we showed of, uh, of, of, of Alison, Jan of uh, Catherine O'Hara and, and Jeff Daniels. You know, I use, I, I shoot a lot of this movie in two shots because a lot of it is about couples. And I wanted to see the way they react, they, they interact with each other, the ease, their physical ease within the frame, you know, not endless close-ups and that sort of stuff. You want to see, um, uh, tell the story with how they are with each other physically and uh, spatially and all of those things. So that that tends to be how I rehearse for, for film. Theatre is a totally different thing entirely. I mean, you know, film is like, a, the best analogy I can find is film is like a mosaic. You know, you, you, you make a tiny piece every day you polish it and get it as good as you can and then you put it in a box and you when they're all jumbled together and at the end of the shoot you, you open the box and you try and make a picture out of these mosaic pieces and you just pray to god <laughs> that it's going to end up looking like what you thought it was going to look look like and sometimes it doesn't you know it really doesn't sometimes it's better sometimes it's a whole, a whole lot worse and sometimes you're, you're desperately scrabbling around you know <laughs> to, to extend the analogy past breaking point you know you're looking in the box for more pieces and it's empty you know um, and, uh, and, and theatre's like making a pot you know you can see it the whole time it's a lump of clay and you have to make it into a shape but it's always in front of you all of it all the time and at any time you can say let's run the play let's just do it 
you know, whatever state it's in, doesn't matter. Let's look at what we've got. But you can never do that on film. You have to hold it in your head. And that's what makes it uh, so elusive and so confounding and mysterious as a process because, you know, you, you can often lose your way entirely in the middle of a shoot. I mean, you know, I made a movie and halfway through, I literally, I, I, I didn't know, I, I, I lost it completely. I lost what the story was, where, we, where I was, <laughs> what my name was, <laughs> who anyone was, what anyone was doing there. It's a different thing entirely. Hmm. Hi, Sam. Um, Hello. Speaking about mosaics, yeah, I remember how American Beauty, like, you really didn't know Kevin Spacey was kind of going to be the main one I'd read about, and yet how it came together in the editing, it was just amazing. Something that I've noticed in your film work from even then was the power of music, and finding Alexia Murdoch in this movie was just amazing. If you could speak a little bit about, like, discovering him, how the process of, I guess, sending out either assistance or how it came about. Um, well, I... All my other movies are scored by a wonderful composer called Thomas Newman, who is a genius, and um, and he has got me out of some tight corners and areas of the movie that well, maybe not working, you know, including in American Beauty. He's managed to make work in a kind of smoke and mirrors way, which music can sometimes do if you're lucky. Um, but here, I, when I was saying earlier about using a totally different set of people, I, I decided to move away from that. But I had in my mind that it was going to be a song-driven movie. Um, and uh, and I was looking around for, for, for music and I came across this guy, Alexi Murdoch. He made one album and I was listening to it a lot when I was shooting the movie. Now, the weird thing is when you're, sh when you're listening and shooting at the same time, uh, that's ne you, you know, you can, it can really inspire you on the day of shooting a scene. You've got music in your head, you shoot in a certain way and you're convinced, absolutely convinced that you're going to put that song on that scene it's a done deal and then you get into the cutting room and you put it up there all excited and it doesn't work and it ha it's happened a number of times to me and I shot the whole of American Beauty with three songs in my head that I was absolutely convinced were going to be in and none of them made it um, one of them was a Pink Floyd song and I, the whole of the end of the movie was, was structured around a Pink Floyd number I mean I was naive in those days and these days I would say I, I would never use Pink Floyd because that's $750,000 for one song <laughs> so so no way, I, I wouldn't have even gone as far as like, listening to it on my iPod. I was like, no, that's not, I'm not even going to go there. But you know, in those days, I was like, yeah, we can have Pink Floyd and the Beatles and all these unknown songs. <laughs> anyway, so I, 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 but the point is that this is the only time I've ever experienced the opposite, which is that I had this album, I did listen to it a lot, I did try it on the movie, and it worked. And, um, and, and I, used them, I used more and more of the songs and uh, and, it, and the movie really started to, to you know welcome it and then I called Alexi and I, he, he lives in the highlands of Scotland in the middle of nowhere like seven miles from the nearest dwelling and uh, he's very particular he's a really talented guy and I said listen I've used almost your entire album on my movie you want to come and see it and he's like oh okay and he liked it a lot and uh, his girlfriend's actually pregnant with their first child so he was <laughs> very, like freaked out by the whole thing because it's all about that and then uh, and I said, would you write three more songs? And he did. And, and then he reorchestrated certain of his numbers. He sort of so we could weave them under scenes and use them a little bit more for underscoring. And before you know it, there's this other thing that's kind of a character in the movie, which is the songs. And it, it really is like another character. And his voice, you know, you hear it uh, punctuating the film, and it, it's very melancholic, and it gives the movie another dimension. I think. Hi, can you talk a little about what you uh, learned, some key things you may have learned from uh, Conrad Hall in your first uh, couple films? Um, thank you. Applause for Conrad Hall. Um, uh, he's, a, well, he's a genius. I, I see the word genius up on the thing. That's his genius bar, you know, and there aren't many people that you know in your life who are geniuses, but he, 
he, he, I mean, I suppose what I learned from Conrad specifically, other than, you know, for those of you who don't know, Conrad Hall shot American Beauty and won the Academy Award for it and shot Road to Perdition and won the Academy Award for it and then died um, at age 75 of cancer um, and was the sort of, uh, it still is the person I miss most who's no longer with me when I make a film. I think about him all the time. He's a very, he's a very, very special person. And I think about it not because he was a genius cinematographer, which he was, but because of what an extraordinary human being he was. Um, he was a, a joyous man to be around him. He literally had the enthusiasm of a child about what he did. And um, he loved photography. He loved cinematography, moving photography, moving images. But he was remarkably disinterested in technology you know, he, he was not interested in how a camera worked. He was not interested, you know, he kind of vaguely interested in filters and bits and pieces like that. What he loved was people, room, space, and light. And that's, that's, that's how he, you know, uh, uh, that's what obsessed him. Um, but, but I suppose what I, what I learned from him was just, um, was just to be driven by love and enthusiasm, you know, and, and, uh, and follow your heart. And I mean, that sounds such a cliche, but he was um, one of those people that, was inspiring for, for very obvious reasons, you know. You, so, thank you for mentioning him. Can I ask you about Spielberg? I, 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 in terms of um, influences and learning from people, Steven Spielberg, I guess, asked you to direct American Beauty, which at the time was a surprising choice and uh, gave you this great opportunity. And of course, you had knocked it out of the park. But, but could you talk about what you learned from him? Because he really worked closely with you. Uh, well, he was. He, he's a very good producer because he, he sort of encourages you and then sort of keeps his distance, you know, and watches it at crucial times. Um, I, I mean, he's an incredibly generous man, I mean, in truth, you know, and, uh, you know, I should have all sorts of stories about really he's a nightmare and he's a pain in the neck and, and like, you know, you, he has a good... But the truth is there's nothing bad to say about him. He's, he's a remarkably, you know, he loves other filmmakers and he really enjoys watching people begin their journey as filmmakers mm. and he's given first chances to so many people and I'm just one of them, you know, I mean there are 25 <laughs> top filmmakers who he's, who's been a serious part of their careers I mean, he uh, one thing he said to me was basically you know, look, uh, you know I could, give you a, I could give you two speeches this is before I made American Beauty, one of them is the speech of a, the guy who runs the studio, which is, of course was him and the other is the speech of a, an, a director who he wants to give advice to a, a, a younger director, which was also him. He said, I'm going to give you the director advice. And the director advice is, if you, if you feel you haven't made your day, if you feel like you haven't got the shots you want or you have a brilliant idea at the last minute and you can't get it, the sun's going down, fight with every fiber of your being to get an extra day, to get an extra hour, you know, to cajole the studio into doing it. But just don't tell anyone at the studio I told you that. <laughs> <laughs> just do it, you know. And uh, and I did. And I fought. And we fought a lot. We went about a week over, which in a movie that size is a lot. And it was expensive. And um, But I had his words in my ear the whole time. And it wouldn't be half the movie if he hadn't said that. Hmm. Okay. I have a quick one and a long one. One is, do you have any plans to work with your wife again? And two is, how do you pick your scripts? Because I feel like they're also rich in character and plot and aesthetics. And I don't know which one comes first or how do you... Well, a moment I thought, how do you pick your shirts? I thought you said. <laughs> I'm like, well, you know, I go to all the stores in Soho. I buy the same black shirt over and over again. Um, uh, I would love to work with my wife again. Um, but I've always found, in, in, you know, whoever the actor, <coughs> particularly someone you live with, you, you can't, if you, if you put the actor first 
and then try and find the script. It never seems to work. It, it's weird. You know, I've tried it several times at the theatre. You know, I found an actor I long to work with. It's like, let's find something to do together. And it just doesn't work. You, you don't find that thing, you know. Um, it tends to find you have the script or the play or whatever it is, and then you go and you think, the person that should do this is X, and you go to them, and that's how it works. So um, that's, I hope, will happen again. I'll find a script, and I'll think, the person who would be great for this part is Kate. But you can't predict it. Um, and uh, the script, was it scripts you said, or shirts? Um, it, uh, the script, uh, you know, it's just, I don't know how, they just, they, they find, they, they, you know, I'm, I'm terrible at developing scripts, in truth. I'm really not very good, and a, I, a lot of um, directors, I think, are like me in the sense that they prefer to receive something that is pretty fully formed before they, and then they can make it, you know, they, they, they know their gut instinct is, they trust their instincts. But when you cut, someone comes with a book proposal or a treatment, and it's like, well, that kind of could be good, or, you know, but you'd be amazed how many people come to you with sort of vaguely formed ideas or lookbooks about things, and you're like, well, you know, anyone can make a lookbook, but a script, an actual succession of scenes, a story, you know, um, and a good one, it's rare to find, you know, and um, uh, particularly original screenplays, and, uh, which is what this one is. So, you know, it's in the lap of the gods, I don't know. I may never get one again. <laughs> Hiya. Hi. Uh, it was said before, I think we something we said a little bit about America, but something I feel about life in general is that many of your movies... Uh, are about some great idea about life and that and that each one takes on a separate meaning and many of which actually contradict one another and that in the end you, you might start to see sort of a, a greater idea forming and I'm wondering if consciously or unconsciously that's something you're trying to do is form a great idea about life or you know about something within sort of the the context of the many movies that you create. Well now you mention it. <laughs> no, I, 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 I um, no but there are things that emerge weirdly retrospectively as you look back over the things you've done it didn't occur to me until this movie weirdly that every movie i've made basically has as a central character or characters uh people who are lost and trying to find a way through to an answer you know they're all basically dealing with how how do we live you know um and they're not high concept movies they're not thrillers they're not you know conventional romantic comedies they're not you know they're, they're, they're not uh, fantasy movies or sci-fi they, they all exist within if you think about it relatively narrow strata in terms of themes you know um, and they have a central character who's trying to find some sort of answer about how to live better because they all feel they've lost uh, they, they found themselves in a place they didn't expect to be and um, and that's the case with this movie, and it was the case with Revolutionary Road and Jarhead and, Re and Road to Perdition and American Beauty. And, uh, and I suppose I am drawn to, to, to that uh, struggle for, to find some meaning. And that sounds terribly pretentious, but it seems to me the only interesting question there is. Um, what's, what's the point? You know? um, and uh, you view it at different times in your life in different ways because you, know, you yourself change and evolve you know, hopefully. Uh, and, you know, when I started directing, I wasn't the parent. I, I viewed the characters in American Beauty through the eyes... Uh, I, I viewed American Beauty, the story, through the eyes of the children in the movie, not weirdly, even though Lester Burnham narrates the movie, Kevin Spacey's character, I didn't... That's, for me, the centre of the film is the kids. Um, and that was the case, too, on Road to Perdition. I, I viewed the adults through the eyes of the child. Now it's the other way around. Now, now I'm a parent. I, I, I look at it through the, with the eyes of a parent. And I, I, I had to watch Rotopedition recent, recently because they're doing a Blu-ray of it. And um, 
being remastered and interviews and all that sort of stuff. And um, and I, I watched uh, the movie and, and, and a, a line that had struck me as a really good line when I um, I, uh, I made the movie is a line that Paul Newman delivers about Daniel Craig's character. And he says, sons are put on this earth to trouble their fathers, he says. And uh, I now don't, just, I don't agree with that. Um, now, I don't know whether I would have still made the movie, but I certainly would have viewed that scene in a different way. So, um, you know, you, you, you do change and, and, uh, and you, you, you're dealing with the same problems, but you're coming at them in different ways and you may be sometimes suggesting different solutions. So it's an interesting question. Hi, Sam. There's some perfect London weather outside, especially for you today. Uh, I have a question. Um, <laughs> when and, and how did you come across the script uh, in the first place? And uh -huh. were Dave and Vandela involved actively during making the movie? Were there any rewrites, any suggestions from them? Yeah. And uh, would you actually um, try to, to direct um, the movie based on Staggering Genius, uh, the book? On which? On on the, the the most famous book of Dave Eggers, the Stag oh, oh, heartbreaking, heartbreaking work. Would yeah, you ever yeah. direct? Yeah. Um, I work. came across the script because someone mentioned mentioned it to me, and I sorted out. I'd heard that they'd they'd written it, and I thought I can't believe they've written a screenplay. Where is it? You know, um, and uh, the truth was that they hadn't given it to anyone, and I sort of went and grabbed it really, and just to read it. You know, out of fascination because. I'm a big fan of Dave's, and uh, I, I hadn't actually read anything of Vendel at that stage. Now I've read her too, and I'm a big fan as well. But, and I did involve them a lot. Um, that's not always the case, but with an original screenplay, you feel like, look, you, you invented this world. I want to know what's in your head. So I would ask them things like, well, what do you think that person's house looks like? And what do you think they're wearing? And how do they wear their hair? Now, I, I, I didn't always do exactly what they said, but I wanted to know what was in their head first. So I, I had all those answers. And then I got them in rehearsals and I got them listening to the lines because I, I knew that as soon as they heard the actors reading the lines, they would instinctively make changes, decisions. Um, so I had them do that. And then, you know, as far as heartbreaking work of Staggering Genius, which is Dave's first novel, he wrote a screenplay for it. And uh, it was famously uh, it never got made. And now he owns the rights again and he never wants it to see it get made. And I think he's right because at the end of the day, that book is a memoir and it's him. And I think he is a very private person and I think he realizes how lucky he was to get away without having that movie made. And, you know, if you haven't read the book, you should read it. It's a, it's a masterpiece and it's a wonderful book. But it's, it's painful and personal and uh, it would be very difficult to make as a film. I think. Okay, I think we have time for two more questions. So um, there's one over here. Hello. I was wondering, uh, what is your best advice for, uh, you know, the stress of directing? Like, uh, you know, how did you just stress yourself? during production and the stress of directing yeah how do you deal with it um uh well that's a good question um i think you have to have some time on your own <laughs> uh at the beginning and end of every day i think you have to you, you have to sort of go and be quiet the, the, the thing about directing is so much of it is just talking you know communicating you spend the whole day talking describing cajoling Explaining, I want to do this. Or how do you want to do this? This is how. I want, this is what I want it to be. You know, it's 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 not it's a, it's not a practical thing in the sense that you know, the cinematographer, you get your hands on a light and I don't know, you're you've got a camera in your hand, something. You know, directing is not like that. You're just there. You have to just be talking. So you have to f switch off because you know you get wrung out. Um, 
and and the Spielberg advice was wear comfortable shoes, you know, which is <laughs> which is which is which is a very good one because you know you, you don't want to get caught on set with, uh, with with uncomfortable shoes. But it's it is it's weird, you know. You feel like you know you 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 have to find your own space at the end of the day. <laughs> right, right down here. Last <laughs> question. My name is Stephen Reed. I have a question. What would you suggest to a first-time director, someone who's never done it before and just wants to jump in it? How would you suggest that person jumps into it? Well, I mean, here you are in the Apple Store. You know, I mean, this is this is you can make a movie with the equipment in this store easy, um, and uh, a bloody good one too. And in fact, you wouldn't be the first. So, um, you know, you just got to do it. Um, but the the thing that I think is not talked about very much, you know, filmmaking, the actual act of making a film, you know, hold a camera, have someone stand in front of it, you know, make sure that they're not standing against light so you can see them and all of those things that, that that's conquered very quickly the thing that is difficult is telling a story that lasts an hour and a half two hours whatever it is making it coherent you know having a beginning a middle and an end i mean telling a story to an audience and holding them that's the difficult thing i think and i, I would say you know study different ways of telling stories you know and don't don't just think about movies think about the theater and think about opera and dance and other ways of telling stories and keep your you know peripheral vision open you know don't just become obsessive about a camera and you know and one act you know what i mean it's just like keep keep it um be aware of what's going on around you and the other thing is you know the best advice because there is no certificate that says you're a director right you can't go and say you know no right now i've passed my x test i you know i i mean if you think about it there are very few people around who achieve that kind of position of power without an official document that says that they're capable of doing it, right? So, you know, you're a top lawyer, you've got to, you, you pass your exams, you know, you're a top doctor, you've got to prove that you're, a, you know, you're legally a doctor, but you don't with a director because, um, and, and the best, best quote I've ever heard was Peter Brook, the theatre director, he says, the only way to become a director is to just call yourself a director and then persuade everyone else that that's the case. <laughs> So if you want a director, you are a director from this moment on. <laughs> well, thank you so much. A pleasure. Okay. That was great. So go make movies, everybody. <laughs> thank you very much.